Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 57, the next and final installment of our colossal big country Buffalo Skinners deep dive. We're going to start just where we left off last time. Chester's Farm. Okay, Chester's Farm is a song we have quite a few comments from the band on, so I'll just quickly get through that. And we'll start with the one from Bruce, from the liner notes in the remaster, where he says, This song was only played a few times on the North American tour, and I thought would have been a great opener. Unfortunately, there were too many guitar and keyboard overdubs on the album that it was very difficult to replicate live. Stewart says, again in concert in Germany in 93, Some period in our dim and distant past... There was this guy working away in a laboratory and he discovered this weird shit. He let this go and he targeted it at the people you were the most afraid of. <laughs> That's fairly deep, isn't it? <laughs> or maybe it isn't. And then you have Tony, the, the guy who created the most of the music for the song, saying, I remember writing a piece of music with Bruce for a big country song that eventually became Remembrance Day. With that in mind... I wrote and recorded this song on Remembrance Day of 1990. Again, we should remember the horror and sacrifice that so needlessly took place. But that part of history is part of our world and our lives that most of us lead today. We are lucky. Things could most definitely be worse. Most of the music to that song became the main musical parts of Chester's Farm from the Buffalo Skinner's album. So the song that Tony is talking about here, that he wrote on Remembrance Day in 1990, is called The Cenotaph. And we have mentioned this song before here and there, but this is the place to take a closer look at it. The music to that song, to Cenotaph, forms the basis for Chester's Farm. And Tony included the Cenotaph on his website release, Demos of Themes and Other Dreams, released in November 2001. And uh, what a title, first of all, The Cenotaph. <laughs> I know, I love that title. I love that title. I wish that... It's very sci-fi. It is. It's also very powerful because of what it is. It's, it's definitely a title that hits you. And a title that, because of that, would have fit beautifully on the Buffalo Skinners, in my opinion. Especially if it had maintained its position as album closer. Like, the end of the album, The Cenotaph. <laughs> kind of fits but just before we go too much further I want to acknowledge that English may not be the first language of everybody who listens and it's not my first language either so I had to look up the meaning of that word when I first saw it so for the benefit of those who like me have English like your fourth language or whatever it is a cenotaph is an empty tomb or a monument erected in honor of a person or group of people whose remains are elsewhere where you don't have a body to bury, but you still have a gravesite to go to. Usually used for people who are lost in war, I think. Uh, and this song, The Cenotaph, definitely was written about war. It was written about World War I. Uh, I didn't know what that word meant either, to be honest with you. I had to look it up as well. Okay. So it's, it's, not a common, it's not a common term used in America. We have the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, which is probably a similar type of thing. Mm. But um, yeah, so yeah. I also had to look that up. 
so when you when you know what that word means, the cenotaph, then certainly it's uh, it's epic in every. Oh, it is. Yeah, and epic is a word that we'll get back to many times when talking about this song. Uh, so just to touch on the lyrical themes of the cenotaph a little bit before we go to uh, Chester's farm, uh, it's about World War One specifically, and we don't want to do a full dissection of the demo, but I want to include just one example of the lyrics that Tony wrote for uh, for the cenotaph, which is. For those of you too young to care, it seems so very long ago. There's a picture of a green field that is lined with crosses, beside another field with straight, new swaying blood-red poppies. For those of us too young to care, remember once those fields were bare. That's chilling. That's great. I think that uh, that affects me uh, a, a lot just looking at that. And that's just one example. I, oh, think, yeah. uh, I think Tony poured himself out there. And you... You can you can compare that with the lyrics to to Chester's farm. I mean, I I, I find them entertaining, but they're more sci-fi, whereas the cenotaph lyrics seem to really be about something and and much deeper on, on some level. So I think the as far as words go, the cenotaph is the one that packs a mighty emotional punch. And talking about those who made the ultimate sacrifice all those years ago, and uh, not painting them as hardened commando soldiers, but young men. Much like the young men portrayed in uh, songs like Where the Rose Was Sown. Another song about war with a mighty emotional punch. So that is a big country theme that they have used uh, now and then. So just to compare a few musical things, and we'll get back into how those worked out in Chester's Farm. Especially the opening. And I think we mentioned Baba O'Reilly a couple times. This is a demo where the Baba O'Reilly opening really, you can hear it. But it's not as long-winded as, frankly, I think the Bob O'Reilly sometimes can can feel like. It's 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 short to the point, and it adds some very nice ominous guitars over it. And they kept some of that for the uh, for the the Chester's Farm one too. have the song builds especially getting that really cool guitar lead line in there too and uh, and the build up to the first verse some really cool changes with a great flow from section to section and that underlines the progressive approach that tony would often have in his uh, songwriting but obviously on the other side it is a demo it isn't finished there is a drum machine it's not a finished part but the song is reasonably fleshed out an interesting thing also about the demo is that tony's voice is much more subdued than normal on that song. He's singing about some pretty heavy shit here. War, lives lost, destruction. So he doesn't utilize a powerful and passionate vocal. He takes on a much more somber, perhaps even sinister, as much as Tony possibly can, tone. So that is not normal for Tony. It's not his usual or preferred delivery. But he he puts a certain nerve in it. And I think he does a, 
a great job as far as this being a demo on uh, the Cenotaph. I think that, that certainly fits the song and underpins the uneasy undercurrent of dramatics and life and death outcomes of, of young men losing their lives in the war. So I, th I think a song that touched on some of this in the context of the Buffalo Skinners would have worked wonderfully in light of uh, especially songs about corruption and the undercover movements uh, in selling of America. Songs about all going together, not the least. A song about war and at least aspects, uh, specific aspects of war. It would have fit. So if you take the album title into consideration too, the skinning of the buffalo, the reaping of resources and perhaps the reaping of human life, uh, there's a possibility to tie it all together, but uh, obviously they did go a totally different uh, route on uh, on Chester's farm. And that takes me back to Tony's initial comment about the album, where he said for this song, Chester's farm was an epic finale. I'll let you in on a little secret. This was Stuart's least favorite track, not because he didn't like the song, but because it was going a little too epic rock for his liking. That, that was interesting. And... Uh, I think there's no doubt the original version of the song was very epic and, and grandiose in my book. Um, and that's all good. But um, they wanted something else for the album? Not a problem. They changed it into a much more straightforward song. And while I, I prefer a lot of the aspects of uh, the Cenotaph, I think Chester's Farm did fine. But the comment that Chester's Farm is still too epic rock really strikes me as odd. Because I think the song they changed it into fits very well amongst the other songs stylistically. It's, it's really not more epic rock than a lot of the other songs on the album, in, in my estimation. Slightly more progressive, perhaps. But epic? We'd have to get a, a good definition, I think, of what he means by epic. Because that, that could mean so many different things. I mean, it, it, it does have more of a, more of a big who, over-the-top feel to it, I think, than some of the songs. But, I mean, certainly it's no more epic than their version of Kansas on this album. No, and uh, this takes me back to the comment that you shared through Bruce, that um, it's easier to think he just preferred his own stuff, as artists often will, and I don't blame anyone for that. And Stuart wasn't keen to sing it live. Maybe he just preferred his own songs, which is, uh, you know, it's natural. I don't blame anyone for that. But, yeah. but because the epic thing seems to me as an excuse almost. It's, uh, but again, what, what does epic mean? The song went through many changes. And uh, as far as uh, the subject matter, the song tries to be mysterious, much in the same way that the selling of America is mysterious. Something is going on, something covert or undercover, something secret, 
So something is going on there. So it taps into a little bit the same thing. But on the other hand, it really isn't too secret because the song eventually really reveals everything quite openly. Verse by verse we find out. So uh, let's look at, at, uh, at Chester's farm. And the first verse, it's all about the mystery. Black cars come and black cars go. You see shadows move behind the glass. No one asks questions. Things are going on. Black cars come and black cars go. Full of secrets you will never know. Tires hiss and the rain be built on nagging. Shadows move behind the glass. No one worries, no one asks. Politicians come and go so fast. So uh, it paints something there and uh, and it's mysterious and we don't really know who the teller is because the song tells more and more but the chorus seems to be this third person and i always got the vibe of the nosy neighbor like someone is living next to this chester farm site and <laughs> right and saying i don't mean to do no harm i don't want to cause alarm i try to be cool i try to stay calm but something weird is going on at chester's farm so <laughs> this is the guy who sees the black cars come and go i think that that's Hence my nosy neighbor uh, kind of comment. So um, it's an observer. Know something's not right. Try to say so, but without causing fuss. You know, it's cool, but something's weird. So that, that's where um, it's a little humorous in some way. So it's, I like uh, that voice you did, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it again as often as I can. I try to add to the show. I, I add voices, if nothing else. Uh, the second verse starts speaking about what is going on. Uh, this is where it gets more explicit about experiments on animals, mutations happening, scientists testing away. we do know that experiments are happening on animals in this world. It is something that's going on. So when Stuart throws in a line like, on the wings of an industrial funded research lie, he seems to really display his distrust of the motives of any such experiments. And that's where the song gets a little bit more political because uh, it has this air of sci-fi and uh, just sort of this weird covert tale. But uh, he doesn't like put it in your face like Testing on animals is wrong, man. But I, I get some of that here, and that um, that wouldn't surprise me that he would use something like that. Sure. Uh, the third verse is where things have gone too far, and the goings on at Chester's farm is about to take a turn for the verse. It's it's kind of a a turn of all go together type proportions. biological demon child. I don't know if this is a deadly monster mutant that is unleashed upon the world. The kind of the B-movie lover in me kind of hopes that's where this is going, but it could just as well be a deadly virus or a mutation or something that is now a threat to humanity. Something's gone terribly <laughs> wrong. Um, not more specific than that. It doesn't need to really. 
we don't need to have it called out. It's this virus that is now spreading and it's causing mutations and we're all doomed. It's, um, it kind of touches on the same thing as Kate Bush's Experiment 4. I was just going to mention that song. Yeah. Yes, It's exactly what it is. It's so That's, funny. We both had that same thought. Yeah. Why wouldn't we, really? <laughs> right, right. If, if, if one of us was missing that, we wouldn't have done our job. Right. Because that is also a song about government-funded experiments of a very dubious nature. And there's also a very entertaining video, which is well worth checking out on YouTube if you haven't seen it. But it's, it's the same thing. into exactly the same thing and um, and that's it that's the lyrics I, th- I don't think I mean we've been going through them but I don't think we need to dissect them for people it's very clear and right. again the nosy neighbor and I'm, I won't do the voice this time but uh, oh, some, something weird is going on at Chester's farm <laughs> and I think he'll, he will be the first to notice what it is when the when the mutant monster is unleashed or the virus or whatever <laughs> the first thing he'll do is visit that neighbor and show him exactly what's going on at Chester's farm so um, that's that. And musically, a lot more is retained from Tony's original song, although some sections were completely changed. I think especially the opening is, uh, is really good. They have maintained some of the Tony feel from the, the Baba O'Reilly-like keyboard arrangement, but they're playing it on guitars. Mm-hmm. And I think that is great. Uh, the fact that they, they keep it and rearrange it completely on guitars and you have Stuart and Bruce just going crazy on that, that little part. I, I love it. And they go straight into a, this wonderful guitar theme, which I, I don't know how anyone can't like. Uh, I know this song wasn't played live, but hearing just the first, first, um, hearing the first thirty seconds of this song live, I think would have blown people away. Oh, this was this was played live. Yeah, I mean, uh, rarely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, yeah, a couple times and abandoned. So if if you were lucky enough to hear this song live, just these first. 30 seconds would have just blown you away. I mean, there is so much quintessential big country in that opening. It's just crammed full of it. It's like 30 seconds of every trick in our bag. Yeah. <laughs> it, I remember hearing that for the first time and hearing that d- thing with the digital delay opening the song. And mm. yeah, it took me right back to like Wonderland or something. And I, it yeah. totally took a left-hand turn after that. But yeah, yeah. I did. Though those first 30 seconds is, is one thing and the rest of the song is another thing. Yeah, that, very that's, much that's so. absolutely the case. Uh, the verse is is much more like the Tony demo, but the melody line of the vocal is is new, and that is now the driving because obviously Tony's original was much muted in in hand with those lyrics he wrote for the cenotaph. So this this fits better in some regard to obviously the Stewart's delivery for one thing, but also the uh, the song, the new song, and the topic. The chorus is the biggest change, though. I don't mean to know. 
and uh, I think the chorus is okay. It's not the strongest part of the song for me. Uh, I don't have a problem with it. Just a feeling that it's not as strong as, as the rest. And it's repeated quite a bit. And once the first time, then twice the second time, and uh, again twice the third time. So that's it. I think uh, if you did if you did it in the voice of that nosy neighbor, maybe I would have liked it a little more, but there you go. <laughs> no, I think, uh, so the verses are, are reasonably strong. And um, I also like about this song, it has an actual end section playing quite frantically. Simon yeah. is hitting everything around him as if to illustrate how everything is really going to hell in a handbasket. The Jester's farm is going down. <laughs> the it's like a grand finale at a, in a fireworks show. Yeah. The ending of this song is fitting towards being the end of the album because everything is frantic and uh, after this album, in some ways, that's the only ending. But I don't think this song really is is the um, the end thematically to the album. That makes sense. We'll um, we'll talk more about that. You know, something really interesting happened to me with this song <laughs> in preparing for this show. It's like um, it's it still it still ranks lower on my list, but. As I listen to this a lot over the last few weeks, I really, I really liked it a lot more than I remembered that I liked it because Me I too. always, Me yeah, too. it's like a, I, I always placed it lower, and um, as as we've said a million times, even a low song on this album is still a good song, and I always thought it was a good song, but I was amazed at how I was really just really getting into this song more over the last few weeks and. Uh, and res- respecting it more and thinking it was abs- actually a little more substantive than I had thought in the past. Um, it, it is very much a, it's certainly not a light story, but it, but it does have almost a sense of humor to it. And you, you doing the voice of the observer, it kind of, I mean, that's kind of what the song lends itself to. It's like, it puts you in the, in the place of this guy. I always looked at him as one of those people who would, would be a, uh, one of those redneck types who in America you would see interviewed on the news after a UFO came down and they would say like, I seen it, I seen it come down and pick me up, you know, they, and they would see you did a voice it. too. <laughs> I, did, I told you I liked it. I was serious. Um, yeah. So it kind of always reminded me of that. And I think maybe that, maybe that rubbed me the wrong way initially as I look back on this album, because um, when I hear Stuart using lines like I try to be cool, I try to stay calm. It's it's so it's so close minded of me, and I completely admit that. <laughs> but it's like I never liked when Stewart would would go into the more mundane um, approach with lyrics. You know, I always wanted him to be very highbrow and abstract and this and that. And so, again, that's my own problem. I, I acknowledge that. But I, as I as I look back on when I first heard this song, I think that might have been one of the things that made it maybe took a point or two off for me. But it's still it's it's such a it's such a raucous, huge song, and again, going back to the whole epic thing. I mean, we we would need to know exactly what Tony meant by that word. I mean, we can 
get some ideas of it. And it certainly has an epic, larger-than-life feel to it musically. But I don't know if he meant that it was sounded too much like traditional rock or, or whatever. But the thing about this song that, that gets me, though, is it still has so many, and, and you mentioned it too, it has so many of those great big country trademarks throughout the song, lyrics notwithstanding. But the first thing, one of the first things that hit me, um, aside from that great guitar opening that we already talked about, is Tony's bass. He's got like just great bass lines going throughout this song. Yeah. Black cars coming, black cars And I'm assuming that having written the music, and not that he doesn't shine on the rest of the album too, he does, but I'm assuming having written the music probably and probably lived with this song a little bit longer, maybe that enabled him to, you know, have the time to be a little bit more creative with some of the bass lines because these bass lines are just very Steel Town esque. I mean, they're moving all over the place and really adds so much to the song. Um, I'm kind of going backwards here, talking about the music first, but I'll do that. Um, one of the things I really love about it too, musically, is something that I've always loved about Big Country when they do this. It's it's like Stuart would would all often have a song with a lot of distorted guitar parts or crunchy guitar parts, and he would often have clean parts over top of those at times in various parts. And whenever he would do that in a song, I just thought I love that. I love that interplay of a clean guitar with a dirty distorted guitar, and he does that a lot throughout the verses. In fact, there's um. There's just this, this one little clean part that comes throughout each of the verses, usually in the second half of the verse, and it's kind of like, it's just like this little descending clean guitar part. It's like. And it goes throughout both verses. It's so, it's so nice and so subtle, but so great. I love that part. Mm. Um, and meanwhile, we've got like chunky guitars, muted guitars playing underneath. Um, that if you listen to the song in headphones, you can kind of hear that delay thing from the beginning sort of repeated throughout the choruses as well. The, it's, there's like a digital delay type of thing underneath it that gives it kind of a padding sort of feel. And and Bruce, it was interesting that Bruce talked about keyboards being used on the song because I didn't notice any keyboards when I've listened to it. But uh, maybe some of those were done on keyboards. I don't know. But there there were a lot of parts in this song as far as uh, a lot of layers of parts in this song that I can see what he means when he says there was just so much there. It was tr- difficult to do it live. But mm, I think you I, only noticed the Hammond. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, I've got a I've got a radar for that Hammond. <laughs> Sorry, keyboard players out there. But um yeah, I saw them do this live when they played it here in America. It was on their set a lot. There's video of it you could find. It's 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 good. It's really strong live. Um, but I, I imagine it was hard to play live too for a variety of reasons. It's it's a very complex uh, song musically. It's hard for Stewart to sing, I think, because it's the the vocal is way up there. He, he sings in a higher register for most of the song, and the guitar solos are are really really tough. I mean, we talked about the simplicity of Pink Marshmallow Moon. Um, but the guitar solo in this song is just, I, I don't want to say that it's some sort of big, complex, uh, classical Ingve Malmsteen type of thing. 
but it's a really intense, fast, ferocious guitar solo. It's one of my favorite guitar solos on the album, I think. It's just, it's just great. It just when it comes in, when that guitar solo kicks in, it kicks in with with such venom. And we use that word a lot to describe Stewart's guitar soloing at times, and it it just fits so well. But such venom and such ferocity, and it really fits kind of the the feel of the song as as you said, everything kind of falling apart. And I almost I almost can see Chester's farm like disappearing into a big sinkhole. You know, at the end. <laughs> it's like the ground opens up and just sucks it all in. I'm still hoping um, for the the monster, the mutant monster. I always took it as a monster too. I mean, I, I never I thought about that, but I, I, realistically, I think it's more like a virus spreading. Well, it's interesting because you know he talks about shadows move behind the glass, and you could say that that is maybe the people, the workers behind the glass, or whatever. But the mad scientists. Yeah, but it but it also could be some strange creatures. And when he says biological demon child um, is alive and among us, that 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 always struck me as like some sort of you know, some sort of strange creature. And this is the cage where the mutants fly. Um, and again, you mentioned the Kate Bush song, Experiment 4, and I was going to mention that as well. And if you watch that video that you mentioned, um, that's kind of what that video is. It's like this bizarre creature type thing or swarm of creatures, if I remember correctly, that that appear and just, you know, murder everyone <laughs> who, who work to create them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I love the lyrics of this song. I think they're... Yeah, you can totally say it's it's more of a X Files type of story, and may not be everyone's cup of tea. But um, j- just from a lyric writing perspective, he he does a great job in setting the scene, even from that first mm. uh, verse. I mean, I love the the line: "Tires hiss in the rain, deep into the night," and yeah, black cars come and black cars go. Just just really perfectly setting the stage. I mean, it's a very straightforward song. Great, great lyrics. Uh, I think my my problem would be uh, taking them as seriously as the other lyrics on the album, which seem to be either more personal or more urgent about uh, specific things. And it seems to be more the mutant type uh, creature, B-movie type thing. So uh, no problem with that for me, absolutely not. But it, 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 it does strike me as an odd one out on this album. Well, this is kind of where I where I've thought about it over the past few weeks. And I would have to disagree with the the idea, and I might not have disagreed on this earlier, but with the idea that the Cenotaph lyrics, original lyrics, still could have fit, I, I don't think that a World War One centric song, or even if it's not World War One, but just a song about war that kind of conjures images of where the rose is sown, I don't think that would have fit as well on this album, only because Stewart from the beginning is really set the stage for this album being kind of the the raping and the destruction of earth from a more from an environmental standpoint and yeah you could certainly tie it in that you know human beings are <laughs> an environmental standpoint and the, the destruction of human beings but what where i think this song actually does work pretty well even lyrically as a, as a wrap-up to the album is that it's kind of the final the final step in what the whole buffalo skinners motif is about it's like man 
now now man has has used all of the resources from the environment. We've gotten through all go together, which really ties into this song very well too. But now they have completely gone the the, the they've taken the final frontier into what they can desecrate, and that's nature itself. They've actually they've actually changed nature and used and distorted nature to create this thing that according to the song is going to end up destroying everything mm. and re- resistance is futile. So it's, it's like, um, just, just to clarify one thing, yeah. it's more, it's more about the tone of the lyrics because they does, they do have that B movie thing. Yeah. Cause it's more light. It's, right? it's, it's more about the tone. The lyrics are great and they do fit, but, uh, they def- he definitely uses a different style, shall we say, to put them over than it does for the other ones on the album. So that is what makes it stand apart more than it doesn't fit. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. I, I've, I take the lyrics of this one in a way, kind of the way I took the lyrics to all go together, even though this is more of a... And when I say the lyrics, I mean, as you just mentioned, the the approach to them. Mm. It's like that was more kind of a almost a sarcastic... <laughs> you know, almost evil, <laughs> like as I've said in that song, like uh, relishing the the destruction, and and that isn't really the case here because it's it's through the eyes of this um, observer, but it almost does seem to have this this just coldness about it, uh, similar to all go together. It's like it, everything is ending, and it, it does have this kind of cold feeling about it that I can't quite put my finger on, but. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's it's not my favorite song on the album, clearly, but it's um, and I, I could see a case made for another song we're going to be talking about ending the album, definitely, and and even Pink Marshmallow Moon to some degree, but I think thematically, I can see why they chose to end the album with this song and musically too. It it is kind of the the final nail in the coffin, I guess, so to speak. Of you, you can't really take the theme of of environmental destruction very much further than what it's taken in this song even though it is more of a as you say kind of a a more lighter approach b-movie approach but still the ultimate result is is sort of like all go together you know total destruction all go together might have been an interesting (laughs) album closer as well who knows yeah if if this was a concept album which uh I think we're, we're we're starting to think of the album in terms of a concept now and I'm not sure if that is the right thing but if but if we do that then all go together should definitely have followed this song. Yeah, they would have. They were they're like uh, brother and sister songs, yeah. no doubt. Yeah, yeah, and it's not like every song on the album is about this type of thing, but um, the ones that it seems like the ones that aren't about relationships really are about the destruction of a way of life to some degree. Mm. And uh, you know, it, it certainly isn't a concept album, but I think I think Stewart was sort of taking the same approach he did on other albums, like uh, The Seer, for instance, where you wouldn't call that a concept album, but he did seem to to have like a certain idea that most of the songs hovered around. Yeah, and for that for that one, I think more than any other album, he did have that idea and yeah. I wrote songs in that way. And you can see it here too. I think this was just what was on his mind. I think it's as simple as that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But um, yeah, I, I think it's a I think it's a great song. It's um, it is number ten on my list, and it started out. Uh, higher than that <laughs> it started out toward the bottom really and then when i started to listen to it again i i realized wow i like this song more than i recall and uh so i it moved up a few notches but um i i i like the song i think it's uh it's got a lot of great moments in it 
and it's got great singing, great playing, and that ending, as you say, is just like a, a nuclear reaction, which is which is fitting for the the subject matter. Yeah. So interesting yeah. way to end the tune. Absolutely. Or end the album, I should say. The so. first thirty seconds has that ferocious opening, and the last thirty seconds has this meltdown of an ending. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> it's really those are the the standout moments in some way of the song, which kind of sounds like I'm selling the rest short. I'm really not, but th- those are remarkable. Yeah, they are. They yeah. are. So for me, this is uh, number seven. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's uh, fairly, definitely respectable on this album. But uh, yeah, it, it's a great, great song. So where do you think the people rank this song? <sighs> Gotta be low. Number 12. I kind of gave that away last time, didn't I? <laughs> the, yeah. Yeah, the further back on the album we get, the lower it is. This is the, the last ranked song by the public. So um, it's not up there. It got zero number one votes and it got 10 number 12 votes. It's by far the one with the most number 12s from everyone. Interesting. So uh, Chester's Farm, you know, give it another chance, people. There there might be stuff to like there. Yeah, come on. (laughs) Do your best. So at this point, uh, I have a story, actually. I was wondering how to fit it in. And this this seems to be the best place to take it. This is... um, Stewart's, I call it Stewart's story about Chester's farm, uh, and this goes back to 1996, when Stewart moved to Nashville. And as those of us who were around at the time, he invited fans to communicate with him by email, and he didn't have a huge network over there, and he was quite open about that. So I think communicating with fans for a while was a comfort to him. So he would also pop into big country chat rooms and talk to a lot of us there and participate in Q and A's and. I still have some printouts from some of those Q&As, actually. And I know several of us have uh, have that from those times. So that was a very nice um, nice era where I think um, Stuart quite happily enjoyed spending time on, on this type of communicating for a year or so until his network grew sufficiently. And, of course, he got married again. So then he would naturally spend less time on that. Uh, but for a while, there were some really great and frequent personal exchanges taking place and the story i have about chester's farm comes from one of the exchanges that Stuart had with a fan from those times uh, someone i knew back then and he showed me the message to read when i visited him in person and it absolutely blew my mind so in preparation for this deep dive i was wondering if i should try and retell that story here because i, I would love to and it would be a cool thing to add but there's one big problem i only read this once pretty much 19 years ago this summer. So, <laughs> so obviously I don't remember a lot of the detail. And in fact, I probably forgot most of it. But if you can accept that, and you guys cut me a little slack, there's probably still enough left that it may be interesting to lift out. So with that in mind... And tell can, us the story, Uncle Svein. Oh, I will tell you the story, dear, dear little Tom. <laughs> Sit on my knee and, and be never, all ready. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for that. (laughs) (laughs) That's the perfect setup, I think. But the the message as it was from the one time I read it 19 years ago was basically Stuart telling a story about a time when he and his son Callum went on a road trip to go fishing. And this is very likely when they lived in Florida. So this is after the song was recorded. It's not a story about the origins of the song. It's a story about something in hindsight that uh, was a wow moment for Stuart. So just to make that clear. And uh, I think they drove to a location from uh, where they traveled 
either by boat inland or went hiking up along a riverbank by foot. That's not the point. I don't, those details are not important. But it turned into a little bit of an expedition for them. And they just walked inland and they just happened upon this old structure. So they said, oh, that, that looks interesting. Let's, let's go and explore. And this was a site with a couple of buildings in it, clearly abandoned. And there were high walls around the site. So they followed the wall, walking around to the front, where there was this big open gate. And on a decaying sign above this gate, it said Chester's Farm. Oh, wow. So they went inside, took a look around, explored a little in deep fascination. And uh, from what I can remember from reading that piece, Stuart had no idea there actually was something called Chester's Farm. Uh, and it looked like it could have been that, that place in the song. So he was totally blown away by it. And they looked around for a bit. But uh, this was Reptile County. So they, they were careful and they didn't linger. But Stuart was definitely talking about how blown away he was by, by that site that fitted the location of a song he had written. And uh, I think he found a new appreciation for the song right there. And he was really fascinated. So that was, th- there were more details for sure in the piece. I don't have them. I'm sorry. So wait, so you're saying that he wrote the song before this even happened? He came up upon this after the song was recorded. That's what, that's what I, okay, that's what I mean. So, yeah. so he, he found a place that said Chester's Farm even after he already recorded the song, obviously, because it's in America. Yeah. Wow, that is incredible. It is incredible. <laughs> that really is mind-blowing. Quite a coincidence, and uh, his mind was definitely blown. So, uh, so that, that's, that's the crux of the story as much as I at least can remember. That's and obvi- great. Obviously, the one person who can provide a bit more detail on this is actually Callum. So if anyone talks to Callum Adamson in the future, you can ask him if he remembers that trip and where this was and when this was. And uh, <laughs> please let me know, because this has become part of the mythology of the song to me. Uh, stories like that are great. It adds a lot to the song. <laughs> That's but, uh, amazing. It doesn't quite end there, because I, uh, I asked Art Love, one of our esteemed listeners who also lived in Florida at the time, if he was aware of any sites or locations called Chester's Farm back then. And he actually managed to dig something up. There, wow. was, there was a company called Chester Farms. So that might have been what Stuart <laughs> saw. And that was a domestic for-profit business incorporated in Florida. I'm reading from a site here. Started in 1961, but they were dissolved in 1973. So uh, if that's, if, if, if they dissolved by then, then obviously that site would have been long abandoned when Stuart and Callum found it 20 years later. They were literally dissolved by the blood of the biological demon child. <laughs> that, is a, that is a possibility. <laughs> so so we, we've kind of found that. And uh, there's, uh, there's actually a, a listing online for that uh, company and its, its location. So yeah, you, you can dig into all sorts of stuff. And I'm sorry if this was a vague story. Again, I read it uh, 19 years ago. And there you have it. But <laughs> no, that's, it, that's it, very it totally cool. blew Stuart's mind. And I thought, okay, let's just mention it. That's great. I love it. Gives a little more context to uh, to the song in some ways. It's cool. Yeah, I thought good so. addition. Good addition. All right. Shut All right. Uh, that concludes the ordinary twelve song version of the album. So maybe we should take a look at the total ranking at this point. Um, we have our rankings, obviously, which means very little. We also have the public ranking, which means a lot more, that being 49 people. But I've kind of been revealing that as we've gone along. So it shouldn't be secret, but just for uh, 
for uh, for inclusiveness and, and completeness. Let's uh, just breeze through them then. On number 12 we have Chester's Farm, as we just established. Before that we have Pink Marshmallow Moon on the 11th. We have All Go Together at number 10, which sparked some outrage by, by someone who is partnering with me on this thing. Um, we have Winding Wind on number 9, similar outrage on the other side. <laughs> uh, we have Selling of America number 8, The One I Love number 7, What Are You Working For number 6, Long Way Home number 5, We Are Not In Kansas number 4, and Ships number 3. And the two that stand alone, alone literally number two and seven waves number one very interesting yeah so those those are that and i will post the result of this on the facebook group uh, a, a while after this episode is out i'll give people a chance to just listen through this and uh, we'll we'll share it with you it's very interesting and and that's the group ranking right from our poll that is the poll yeah yeah you know it's it's interesting because i was looking up um i was reading uh some old back issues of country club and i came across a poll that they did Oh, and let me give you those results real quick to see how they they um, pair with the ones that you just gave. Some of them are very similar, actually. Um, but yeah, th- when the album came out, after it had been out for maybe uh, not quite a year, they did a poll in Country Club, and here we got number twelve, Selling of America, number eleven, Chester's Farm, ten, Winding Wind, nine, Kansas, eight, All Go Together, seven, What Are We Working For, six, Pink Marshmallow Moon. That's the only one I shared with them. Five ships, four, the one I love, three, long way home, and just like our poll, number two was alone, number one was seven waves. Mm. So interesting. Yeah. That, that poll was compiled by Graham Goodall, by the way, if you're still out there, Graham, giving you yep. credit. Your work still uh, is red. It endures. Yeah, 23 years later. <laughs> All right, so let's do the least interesting one, which is ours now. And uh, as usual... I'm counting the votes so that if you both rank a song number one, that is two points, which is the best result a song can have. If we both rank something 12, that is 12 plus 12, 24 points, the worst you can have. So the the, the total is between 2 and 24. Got it. And, and we have a double on 23, the, the two lowest ranked songs, Long Way Home and Ships. <laughs> we, um, We're going to get killed. <laughs> well, I kind of already have. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't mind. Uh, Chester's Farm is at number 10 for us with 17 points. Winding Wind and We're Not in Kansas gets an equal 15. Mm. All Go Together, Alone and What Are You Working For gets an equal 12. We have four songs left. Two of them gets an equal 8. That is the one I love and Pink Marshmallow Moon. Our joint number two is The Selling of America with seven points. So that's a very high score or low as the case may be. Very proud. Uh, seven Waves gets four and that's our combined number one. Very cool. Good. Hi, this is Dan here and uh, on SpeakPipe, trying this out for probably the second time, talking about the Buffalo Skinners. Just so you know, I've been a big country fan from the very beginning. I probably still have my cassette tape of The Crossing that I got back when it was fresh and brand new, still with me somewhere. So I followed them here from the United States. Never was able to see them until uh, their recent uh, tour for The Journey. And I was actually, saw them in, saw them in Napa. Oddly enough, I was living and working in Utah at the time. Came back home to where I lived near Napa to see them. 
and uh, I'm still kicking myself that I didn't make the decision to take the journey and go see them when they were in Colorado as I was in Utah. But on to the Buffalo Skinners. I talk about um, the journey because for me, the Buffalo Skinners, I think for many other uh, big country fans, the Buffalo Skinners was like a breath of fresh air, kind of like uh, the journey was in many ways, and even with some um, uh, change in personnel. But um, uh, based on the previous albums, this one had great production, had great energy. It was very dark and angry, but just really good sounds, some classic big country sounding um, tunes and riffs with a bit of a new sound as well. Being a drummer, I was disappointed to um, not hear Mark there. And I uh, thought the change to Simon Phillips, Phillips was interesting. Yeah, again, a very sort of heavy-handed hard rock approach, not a whole lot of, of intricacy there. But it did seem to work for the songs. Oddly enough, Simon Phillips uh, did play uh, drums for a track of the cores, if anyone's uh, familiar with them, for a little Irish-tinged um, uh, pop and rock. And he played uh, drums on an instrumental track called Toss the Feathers. And uh, actually it had a lot more intricacy and sort of a Celtic feel to it, which was interesting how unintricate and basic and non-Celtic his playing was for the Buffalo Skinners. But again, it was a great album. I keep thinking if Mark had been on it, it might be my, my favorite big country album ever. Uh, of course, the contender there would be Steel Town. But... Um, uh, a very strong album, very strong and and um, concise and very consistent quality from beginning to end. Uh, I enjoyed listening to it again for this uh, latest um, podcast you're going to do. And I found that uh, ranking the songs was kind of hard. My first and my last song in the rank were pretty easy. Then I had a hard time uh, ranking all the others. But that might just be... Um, a testament to how strong these songs are, how good and how powerful. So it still ranks up there as um, one of the top big country albums for me. Although I'm still wondering what it would have been like uh, with Mark playing. Nice. So, so we actually came through it, but we're not all done yet. No, we're not. We've got one more song to talk about, and it's a song that really goes with this album, obviously, for the title alone, but um, for many reasons, really. And in fact, some people had requested on our Twitter page, too, that I, I put a tweet out there that asked, what do you want us to talk about specifically when we talk about this album, besides the obvious? And uh, some people said, talk about the song, The Buffalo Skinners. Don't exclude it. So we're going to give that our deep dive treatment, too. 
um, wow, what an int- what an interesting song this is. It's uh, so many possible things to, to say about this song. I don't want to go too long, um, and I promise I won't. And feel free to jump in here too, by the way, if you if you want to, since uh, since this is kind of giving me an extra song to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, this this song lyrically. Let's let's start with the lyrics. Now we already know what Stewart said at the outset about what the term meant to him uh, as far as naming an album after it. And it was kind of this whole thing about he had said something something beautiful, precious is leaving or something is, is leaving the world. And you could take that and apply that to so many different things. But certainly one of the things you can apply it to here, and it, I don't think it's any real coincidence that this album has a little bit more of an American feel to it in many respects, but... Certainly, if if you're an American, often the first thing that you'll think about when you hear that term Buffalo Skinners is Native American Indians. And that's what I first thought about it, because the buffalo is such a huge part of that culture. And so when we look at these lyrics, I'll just come right, right off, uh, come right out and say off the bat what I think the lyrics are referring to or, or the, the perspective I think they're coming from is – even though they're, they, some of these lyrics are really hard to decipher, so I, I, I want to not try too hard to force them into some box because there are always going to be things that don't necessarily um, jibe with what I'm trying to suggest. But that said, from a general perspective, I really feel like this song is being sung from the perspective of a Native American. And you might say, well, how, how weird for Stuart Adamson to sing about Native Americans. Uh, why would he do that? Um, or, you know, a Scottish guy singing about a, an American Indian. Well, remember the song Loserville, which didn't come too much further from this one. He he really attacked the subject of Native American Indian culture in the present day in America head on and very bluntly. And he got it all, you know, spot on from what I from what I know about the situation. I really think it was something that interested him. And it, we even talked about uh, him reading a poem that had the line Buffalo Skinners in it, and that that's struck him. So he was clearly reading about these types of things. And when you look back on the whole um, plight of the American Indian here, it, it, it's a perfect example of what Stewart is talking about when he's talking about something disappearing because their culture was just pretty much obliterated by the, the um, settlers moving in to America. And, uh, you know, I'm not trying to make some sort of huge political thing about it because I think it was it was just something that was bound to happen. But the way they were treated and, and the way the uh, almost genocidal, really, approach to their to their cultures uh, fits fits in, sadly, in a perfect way with this whole idea of just man destroying something for the sake of economic gain or for the sake of progress or, or whatever it may be. But um, let's just talk about the uh, the whole song here lyrically for just a second. Oh, well, for more than just a second. But um, we start out with, and I'll, I'll try to explain why I think this is being sung from the perspective of a, of a Native American. Now, you might say, well, 
here he is skinning buffalo with someone why would that be considered um why would you consider him singing from a native american perspective if he's one of the people who's doing the buffalo skinning well the truth is um the american indians skinned buffalo as well uh in fact that was that was what they used uh the buffalo to survive so many of them so many of the different tribes okay, so, so many tribes of what we call the great plains in america they use the buffalo for everything in their way, in their way of life, in their culture. They use it for food. They use it for clothing. They used it for shelter. And the buffalo actually had a place in the religion of many of them as well. And it was called, uh, the Indian word for the buffalo was Tatanka. And um, there, there was a story of, of a deity um, in the form of a buffalo at some point coming up out of the ground and offering them sustenance. And I don't know the specifics of it, but it, it stretches way, way back. And... The buffalo is what the Indian culture centered around. They would actually follow and migrate um, with the migrating buffalo herds. And what's interesting, and what it kind of leads in more to the to the song lyrically for me, is that usually the women were the ones who actually were the the ones who cut the buffalo up after they were killed. The men would go out in these big hunting parties. They would kill the buffalo, and the women would come and skin the buffalo, cut them up, use use the various portions. Um, for all kinds of things. And it's amazing what uh, what they use the buffalo for. I mean, for the most part, uh, Indians would use every piece of the buffalo. They wouldn't leave the, the carcass to rot and just take the skin. They, they used the hide of the buffalo to make teepees and shoes and shields and ropes. They used the hair and the bones of the buffalo for arrows. Um, some, some were even used for toys for the, for the kids in the, in the tribe. Um, they used the horns of the buffalo as spoons, and they used the teeth and made the teeth into necklaces and door rattles and even glue. And amazingly, even the bladder of a buffalo was used for uh, drinking and contained uh, liquid. So, and, and even even more amazing, even dried buffalo dung was used. <laughs> they used it because it it burned without a lot of smoke, and supposedly, from what I've read, it didn't smell very bad, and it was like a good source of fuel for them. So. The buffalo skinning was something that wasn't just done by the the white hunters and tradespeople who came into the plains and skinned the buffalo for food. It was also done by the Indians. So, so when we get this uh, line where he says, "Out beyond the river, where you and I would ride," it's almost like a personal thing. It's that doesn't strike me as being one of the literal white buffalo skinners who came in to the plains and and did this it, it it strikes me that he's setting itself setting himself up here as being a native american and they're skinning the buffalo buffalo the last ones left alive as i say buffalo was such a huge part of the culture of the indians that when they began to be destroyed and coming to the precipice of extinction um that was what was really setting in motion the the destruction of the indian culture and the, the, when the hunters came in one of the first things that, that caused a big problem was the railroads coming through America because they disrupted the migratory patterns of the buffalo herd and they would split. And then the hunters came in um, who learned that they could make good money off of buffalo pelts and they just began killing them by the thousands, so much more than the Indians even could have killed if they wanted to because these guys are using, you know, developing weaponry that the Indians didn't have. They were able to kill many, many more. And in fact, 
I read that there were like uh, four to five million were killed in a three-year span alone during the late 1800s. And by like 1880-something, 80 80, middle of 18, mid, mid-1880s, the buffalo were nearly extinct. They were almost gone. So I get the feeling in this song that Stewart is kind of tying in the destruction of the buffalo with the destruction of um, Native American culture. And then we get to... Once again, it passed me by. I know it always will. So now I spend my stun- Sunday standing still. A- an abstract line, to be sure, but it can fit with the whole Native American theme here as well because one of the biggest issues that we have uh, here in America with Native American culture is that in many cases, as a whole, that culture has kind of stayed still. It's like it's it's been really difficult for them to adapt and to assimilate into this new culture. In fact, Native American culture in America has the highest rate of poverty by far. It has the highest rate of alcoholism. It has the highest rate of suicides. And it's generally a very impoverished group for the the few that remain. And I kind of get that sense from that lyric that he's saying, and again, there's a little bit of forcing it here. I, I acknowledge that. But it's it's almost like he's saying, since we've already set the the precedent that the, they're skinning these buffaloes that, that are the last ones left alive, suddenly he looks up and his culture has disappeared. That's kind of what I get when he says, it passed me by. His culture has passed him by. His way of life has passed him by. It's suddenly changed. And now I spend my Sunday standing still almost refers, at least in my estimation, how I interpret it, it kind of applies to the current plight of the Native American culture. It's like they're just stuck. They're stuck in this limbo place where they they can't really em- embrace or practice their old culture anymore, but they, they haven't assimilated with, you know, the the European settle, settlers who've come through and the white culture that, that's come through. It's like they're, they're just stuck in this place. And if you look into a lot of the problems that face Native Americans, that's kind of a, the sense that you would get. It's like they're just stuck. They don't know what to do, where to go. And... So now I spend my Sunday standing still to me is a very eloquent, poetic way of, of expressing that. It's like a guy who's not, who's not moving forward. He's not going anywhere. He's just stuck. Um, and then we've got the, the chorus. Musically, it's not really a, a chorus, but I guess it serves as a chorus. It's, and I, I'll talk about that when I get to the musical portion of the song. But sure, we could have, we could have got it right, repeated over and over. Um, that that to me is just a, a great line that really is an, an all inclusive line. I mean, that's one of those lines that you can apply to this entire album. It's like uh, we we had a chance, we could have fixed things uh, before the song "All Go Together" came. We could have fixed it. We could have fixed it before the end of Chester's farm, but we didn't, we, we didn't get it right. Now, I don't know exactly how that applies to the whole native American thing I'm putting forward because it, from what I can, can see about that history, there really was nothing they could have done to prevent, um, the, the, the quote unquote progress that was being made of uh, people wanting to millions of people moving into this land, wanting to settle it. There was really nothing they could have done. I mean, it, they were, they were bound to be overtaken as they were, but 
they certainly could have been treated so, so much better. Um, but then we get to the, the second verse, which to me is even more indicative of the whole Native American thing and maybe is reflecting back on who this person is in the first verse when he says, where you and I would ride. Who is that you? She would be referring back to the you that he speaks about in the first verse, but I almost see that as a metaphor for his for his culture that's gone. It's like somewhere he knows it's still out there. And I love the fact that he uses on a scarlet plane because it gives the sense of like a blood drenched plane of buffalo carcasses. You could you could, you know, take it to that uh, point where he's talking about a, a plane that's just strewn with the scarlet red blood of, of Buffalo. And he hears this, this voice that he puts in a female form could have been a woman that he rode with back then. Um, or as I say, it could be a metaphor for the, the, the long gone culture that he loved and he, but he doesn't hear it anymore. I grew out of those games. It's like he's at this point, he's become bitter and he, he doesn't want to embrace that anymore. He wants to just not hear it. He doesn't want to listen and th- this is one of the, this leads into probably the most difficult to decipher lines in the song. That line is really tough because you, you take the very first verse and he says, we would skin the buffalo, the last ones left alive. And now he's saying, I never skinned a buffalo. I never even killed. So what's he saying there? Well, I don't know for sure. I can only give my, my idea. And what I, what I take that line to be is um, almost as if he's denying his past. Even though he did do this, this stuff and he was a part of that portion of, uh, of the Native American culture that he was a part of when it was in its zenith or whatever – now he's almost so disillusioned, so despondent about his current place that he just he's just almost denying that he was ever a part of that, that that ever even existed. It almost makes me think back to the old um, Bible story of of Jesus's disciple, Peter, denying that he knew Jesus, you know, even though he did. He just says, no, I never knew him. I never knew that that man. And that kind of is the feel that I get here. It's like, yeah, he knows he was once a part of that deep down. He knows there's this voice from his past uh, calling out to him, reminding him of what he is or where he came from. But he doesn't want to listen anymore because he knows it's futile and he knows his future is futile. And thinking back to those things just causes him too much pain. So he denies it and pretends that it doesn't exist. And again, that, that really, if you're, if you're ensconced sort of in, in the plight of Native Americans here, it really fits very, very well because so many of them no longer are aware of that culture. And there are many in the different tribes that try to keep that tradition going and try to keep um, teaching that to the kids. But some of them don't, you know, don't care anymore, even though they know that it was at one point a big part of who they were. Some of them do embrace it, um, but others just – 
don't think of it that way anymore. I don't or don't take it onto a personal level as as maybe their older their elders would like them to. Um, and and they do feel completely at a at a point where they don't know where to turn, where to go. They don't feel like they have opportunities to move forward in the new society that they're living in, and there's no there's no way that they can go back to the way things were or the traditions that they hear about all the time. And in fact, they may look at those in a sort of a bitter light because they're gone now and there's no way to get them back. So they are kind of in this limbo area. And then um, we get back into the sure we could have, we could have got it right thing that's just repeated throughout the rest of the song. So there aren't a whole lot of lyrics to this tune. Um, And again, the lyrics are, I think, among Stuart's more abstract here. And this is just one man's interpretation of them. But uh, that's how I always took this song. And more so in, in the weeks leading up to these deep dives as I listened to it more and more and tried to think of what I was going to um, say about it and how I was going to try to decipher it. But that's really, I, I really feel like this song is, is written from a Native American perspective, which I think is really, really interesting coming from Stuart Adamson. Um, but again, we, we, get, we get proof later on in his in his writing career that this was an issue that he was interested in and he wrote about um, on driving to Damascus with Loserville and th- there might, might even be some other tunes where it was uh, it was mentioned I'm not sure but certainly it was something that he had read about and was aware of and it seems like a plight or a situation that would have really connected with him I think um, so that's how I've always taken the lyrics to this song um, musically it's just a, a beautiful piece of, of just shimmering music. I mean, that's kind of how I describe this song. If I could describe it in one word, it would be shimmering. It, 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 it kind of has that feel of light reflected on the water. It's just, uh, it's so beautiful. And I remember the first time I heard it, um, I, my mouth was just hanging open. And for, one th- for one thing, because it was, it was that big country sound that I love so much, but also... I was just thinking, like, how did this not make the album? How how was this not put on the album? And after thinking about it more, I can understand a little bit from their perspective of why. But just such a strong, strong song in, in so many respects. The bass playing is like, a, it almost sounds like an acoustic bass at times, but just a very melodic bass line that adds just as much to the song as the as the beautiful, clean guitars. Um, and the just that chord progression in the verses, I think, is so just chilling it, it gives you that spine tingling feel that only the best big country music can do um one thing that that struck me as interesting in this song though is that stewart really wrote it in a very high register vocally i mean he's really singing at the top of his range which is which is interesting considering the song is so delicate and i really kind of like that i mean he could have he could have changed the key maybe for this song and that would have enabled that would have enabled him to sing it in a lower register and sing it more softly and sing it more uh, sweetly, maybe. Uh, but I like the fact that he's almost straining vocally in the song, and it's such a weird uh, dichotomy between the music and his singing, where he's just he's belting it out, and yet the song is very laid back musically and very soft and very sweet. Um, so. Musically, it's just a, a gorgeous song. And then when we get to the, the... The one problem that I always had with this song is... And it, it's kind of a problem I've sort of resolved over the years. But the sure we could have, we could have got it right part. I always thought that was a really great part. But I always felt like that should have 
built into something else. Like it, I always felt like that was never strong enough to stand by itself as a chorus that there needed to be that needed to build into a chorus. It was almost like that was a what we call a pre-chorus that was going to build into a chorus. And sometimes when that part was repeated over and over again in the song, I thought maybe it was repeated a little too often in the song. Um, but I've since sort of changed that a little bit because I, I think what I think now is that I take that beautiful guitar solo that comes in a couple times in the song. That almost serves as the chorus. And maybe there don't need to be any more words to the song. Yeah, because that, that guitar, guitar solo is so quintessential big country. It's so melodic. It's so beautiful. And it's it's just, a, again, another spine-tingling moment in the song. And it's repeated twice in the song, almost as if it is a chorus. So maybe maybe that's what Stuart was thinking. It's like, maybe, I, maybe I'll write a chorus here, but maybe there's no need. You know, the, the feeling of that solo is so emotional that maybe that's all you need as far as a chorus. So I, I almost look at that instrumental portion of the song as the chorus instead of the sure we could have uh, portion. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean the uh, there's not a whole lot left for me to say from it. I know I've said a lot already, but uh, I've stammered a little bit here and there because it, it is a difficult song to decipher lyrically. Um, I feel pretty good about my interpretation of it from my perspective, and that's how I choose to look at it. And, and as I've said many times on the show, I was always obsessed with Native American culture, even from a, from being a little kid. So it makes this song mean something even more to me because of that. Um, and uh, I just think it's a gorgeous song. Now, should it have been the album closer? Uh, I certainly think it could have fit. I think it could have worked coming after Chester's Farm. And uh, even though I understand what they're saying, that they, they already had a ballad, et cetera, but I don't know. I, I don't really consider Ship's a ballad too much, even though it is. It just got it's so heavy at, at certain points in the song that it, it's not a traditional ballad to me. No, it's not. It's too heavy lyrically to really be the the, the break. Yeah, exactly. So I, I could see this song being that, and it, yeah, I, I I'm fine with en- it ending with Chester's Farm because it's got that sense of destruction and <laughs> you know chaos and whatever. It's a very cynical ending, but. Um, this song would have been an interesting choice too as an ending because it, it could have given the, the album even more emotional heft, I think, and left it on a note that is even more uh, a, a deeply felt note for the album. And yeah. you know, I I just think it's a great song. It's one it's one of the best songs I think they they've done in the in in that period of the '90s. Um, and uh, just another example of an incredible B-side quote unquote that uh we all we often wonder how it did not make the final cut but yeah anyway no absolutely i think uh, on the topic of of album closer i think it's uh <laughs> that's a discussion we, we've come back to and you had a good uh, theory and the uh, round table about uh, chester's farm fading out into the buffalo skinners yeah and whether out of that destruction comes the lamenting because to me the buffalo skinners is a lamenting song if you notice Chester's farm ends on like this big guitar chord and it just kind of drones on as this, as it fades out and Buffalo Skinner's the song begins with a guitar chord droning up. And I remember hearing those and I always was thought, did they use, did they mean to have those two go back to back at some point and then just decided it wasn't going to work. And um, I've never actually put them together to check that out. So maybe I'll do that on this show and I'll play it. 
Uh, it's a gorgeous song, and it's it's one of my favorites too. So I'm going to put my opinion about the song straight out there. This song belongs on the album, and it should have been the closer. Mm. And uh, that is, we talked about Chester's Farm and how that is not perhaps the ideal closer. I, I like the song, but I don't like that it closes the album. That's not a problem with Chester's Farm in my eyes. It's a problem with really the tracking of the album, or in other words, the order of the songs. I think it flows pretty well overall, except for how it ends. And that's been a little thing, I, a problem I have with it. And I'm sure that is reflected in the audience vote, that it, it didn't score very highly. I just think it's the, the place it has on the album is, is odd for it. It's not ideal. And there are probably other songs in the album that would have worked better as a closer. But whenever I think about what should have been the closer, what would have been the best one. My thoughts always go to this song, to the song, the Buffalo Skinners. And beyond that, you know, I don't need to think about it anymore. It's, it's the obvious candidate for me and the search for the perfect end song ends right there. Mm. Um, and I'll get into that a little bit, but just, uh, just to set up in terms of the album, it's been such an intense roller coaster and musically incredibly intense with a couple of exceptions. And some of those exceptions still have pretty intense lyrics. So obviously this song is a huge change of pace. And not that the lyrics here are, are that sweet and mellow. They actually describe some some really hurtful things, I would say. I think that's why it fits so perfectly as a closer. I think Stuart is taking a step back here from all the stuff that's been going on so far. He's now taking a wider look at things. He is contemplating. And even though he is more reflective... He is no less intense than previously on the album. On the contrary, he is filled with the same strong emotions as before, but it's a different kind of emotion. It's sadness. It's overwhelming sadness. And the song's message is basically, we fucked up. And it's not pointing a finger at anyone else. Uh, he includes himself. He basically said, yeah, we could have got it right, but we didn't. So Stuart is lamenting everything that has gone wrong. And this song is pointing especially to the killing of the buffalo in the 19th century. Uh, and definitely there's a lot of Native American uh, references in the song. Uh, I think, to me, this song strikes me as describing one tragedy by ap applying that one on a wider scale. So yeah. uh, I think he does that quite well. He's not, he's not happily or he's not happy to just describe what happened to the native Indians. He uses that as a wider thing. This has happened on a lot of areas beyond that too. So I'm, and that is um, when placed on a single as a B-side, perhaps you don't see it in a wider context than that. But if you put this song at the end of the album, something happens and holy shit. I, I remembered, uh, if you remember what I said about Kansas, it's very interesting sometimes to listen to a song in the context of an album and how if you place a song on an album, it can change the context for the song. And when that happened with Kansas, I took away something entirely different than I did for No Place Like Home. And doing the same with the Buffalo Skinner song, it's almost like the same times a hundred. The song suddenly gets the context of the entire album. It's the end, and it almost punctuates every song that came before it. If you think of the relationship songs, we could have got it right. Wow, that, that's great. That's awesome. If you think about the songs about corruption and society going wrong, what are you working for a long way home? We could have got it right. 
<laughs> Again, that's yeah. like a double wow. And yep. think of the selling of America. Think of ships. Think of all go together. We could have got it right. It's just incredible. It becomes this mighty punctuation for everything of mm -hmm. all the misery that went before. And the skinning of the buffalo becomes an allegory for a lot of things. And and the song, it, 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 the song is really choked up about it. And the main guitar line in the song the, the one that uh, I agree it serves almost like a chorus, that guitar line is just crying. It's beautiful. And it's glorious, and it's one of the most emotional guitar moments ever produced by any artist, in my humble opinion. It's fantastic, it's a masterpiece, and it's languishing on a B-side. It is languishing on a f***ing B-side. We have heard all the reasons from the band over the years why they didn't put it on the album. It didn't fit, it was more a ballad, a folk piece, country piece, whatever the heck you want to call it. They feel it doesn't fit musically. And I get some of that point. But you can't put a song like The Buffalo Skinners in the middle of an album. Of course you can't. It wouldn't fit. It would be weird. But if you put it at the end, that's, that's different. It's entirely yeah. different. And it ends up underlining everything that comes before it. It puts the music in context. It really takes on a fantastic meaning as a punctuation. The album needs a punctuation. And there's nothing bad about Chester's Farm. But how could you think a song like Chester's Farm was a good one to end the album with in terms of punctuating everything. It has a certain direction all the way up to the end. Then there is a song that, uh, okay, let's call it an oddball song about experiments and mutants. We know it's not just that, but that's how it can strike people. And you need us to sit down and dissect it and analyze it. And yeah, maybe it fits anyway. But <laughs> I think they blew it when they didn't put uh, the Buffalo Skinners on the album. The song has a unique structure. It's, it's it's a ballad, it's laid back, but it works fine. Uh, so, um, and I think the reason it works so well is it, it isn't a rock song. It's not a rock ballad. This comes from the tradition of a folk song or a folk ballad. And if you look at the classic folk ballad, these songs would tell their story differently than songs do in the, in the rock format. And primarily, they were not reliant on a chorus to bring things around or, or punctuate things. And that, um, so I, I felt the same way you did, that perhaps there wasn't a traditional chorus here. But I never, it never bothered me because I saw it more as coming from the folk tradition, where back in those days, people would have verse after verse after verse of story, say 30 verses. I'm just saying that because the number is high or 20 verses, just a continual string of, of verses. And some are sung quietly, almost whispering and barely plucking the strings and other verses explode. So you fill the song with inner dramatics that way. And that's how the Buffalo Skinners works to me. Like he sings it. Very emotionally, he pushes himself, just like you said. It's incredible how it works. Because mm -hmm. the, I think 90% of, 99% of every artist would have gone for the soft, beautiful, sweet vocal. Stuart uh, gives a finger to that. Yeah, he, he, does. He, he, he really pushes it, and that guitar line emphasizes it. And that's what fills the song with emotion. That's why it rocks, even though it's a slow song, and that's why it fits on the Buffalo Skinners. And you know what's interesting about that guitar solo is that that's been recycled by the band. I, do, you, do you know offhand which songs that they've chosen? Because I, 
I was thought about that before we started recording today, and I know there's one on the journey where I think where that line is redone. Um, in Four Good Men, the release that they put out, uh, one of the songs on there, um, one of the original tunes, they put a CD out. Well, I'll, I'll get it and, and give it to you and you can play it. that lead line is recycled. So it's almost like they knew too that this was a great lead line and maybe they thought, yeah. well, it was on a B side. We can, we can take it again. But yeah, I, I agree with you completely. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, They missed both. It should have been the album closer. No one can tell me different. And uh, of course it belongs on the album. The quality of the song decided, not some abstract notion of what the album should be. And if they could have a song like Pink Marshmallow Moon on the album, they could definitely have a song like The Buffalo Skinners. Well, and your point is exactly right, too. It's like that that line, sure, we could have got it right, is the whole crux of the whole album. Yes. I mean, that that's what everything revolves around. So, yeah. It, it, it is the that, exclamation that, point to everything. Yeah, and that totally um, supersedes any issue with, well, it's a ballad. We already had a ballad. Th- that's so much more important to me because, as you say, just having that on the album to forcefully – and purposefully reflect on everything that came before does give that song even more weight than it already has. And it, it really is already one of the more beloved uh, B-sides oh, the no band's question. ever put out. You know, everyone always talks about that song. So I think if it would have had that context of being the punctuation of this album, it might even have been more revered. But uh, yeah, I, yeah. This we, is we, an all-time classic, and it would have been... Um... Yeah, if it had been an album track, I don't think they could have gotten away from it. This would have been the song they had to keep playing all the time from the album, I think, it, it, without question. It may be one of the biggest omissions ever in terms of not putting a song on an album that should have been on the album. Uh, but um, I'll preface that. It's a very dangerous statement to make because we're sitting in now focusing 100% on this song and working ourselves up over it. So obviously, if we take a step back, you can uh, compare it to a song like The Crossing that wasn't on that album either. And that was a great song, a very tragic omission. We all agree it. But uh, that is fine. But I dare say there's one major difference between the two. And that is that The Crossing song does not cast anywhere as big a shadow on the other songs on The Crossing as the Buffalo Skinner song does on the Buffalo Skinner's album. No, it doesn't. It, it isn't even close. So including the Buffalo Skinner's song on that album as a closer, punctuates everything on it on a whole different level than the Crossing song would have done for that album. So at least from that perspective, this probably is the biggest omission ever. So uh, I, um, 
Well, at least the Crossing song can now be found on every CD copy of the Crossing album. It's on there. Sadly, this is not the case for the Buffalo Skinner song. That right. still only exists on the ship's CD single. So, okay, it wasn't on the album. Fine. But it's very hard to get it in any form. And that, uh, so it's either the ship's CD single, including the Big Country Singles Box Volume 4. You will find it there, I think. The remastered album has the demo version. And in some way, I guess I should be grateful for that because that is the only time the demo version has been released publicly. So without that, we wouldn't have had it. Uh, but that now makes the full finished version of this song quite a rarity. And that is double tragic. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Damn, it, it pisses me off. This song has always gotten such a second-class citizen treatment. It's, it's, you can't go and buy it. It's probably on YouTube. I don't know. But um, it yeah. Is. Yeah, it it probably is there, but you can't go and buy it. No, you can't, and and it is a shame. It should be it should be really featured. In fact, it's funny. Um, I was looking for it uh, recently. I, I have it, but of course, you know my the state of my CD collection. I was in my Let's car and I, there. Your car. How do your <laughs> in, CD collection spill into your car? No, some of it does. I was in my car and I had a couple of CDs in there, and one was the uh, what was that? Kings of Emotion. Uh, that most bizarre collection of big country yeah. songs ever put together was insane pretty much has the entire wide long face album on it <laughs> but they had buffalo skinners listed but it wasn't the lot it wasn't the studio version it's even eclectic. Though, yeah but the funny thing is is like a bunch of songs before that it, it would say live in parentheses and this one it did not say live so i thought okay this is the buffalo skinners version i need to listen to this in preparation for the show or this is the you know, studio version and of course, it was the eclectic version. But yeah. you know, that kind of leads me into the next question, and we've got a we've got a poll running on our page at this moment about it, because they did play this live. I mean, the the band must have obviously uh, felt yeah. something about this song because they played it live on the eclectic album. I go back and forth between which one I prefer. I I voted in the poll and I chose the eclectic one, but I could have just as easily chosen the studio version because they're, I love them both for different reasons. Um, but I just happened to, to watch the eclectic version before putting the poll up and it was resonating with me because it was sung, just seeing, seeing Stuart actually sing it. I've talked about how he's belting it out on this song, but seeing him sing it like that and and you know sometimes live and not a criticism because it's what singers have to do to keep their voice going sometimes live when in those types of songs singers will cheat a little bit and sing a song sing a line that normally they would sing higher they'll take it down a notch and in fact we talked about Stuart Stuart doing that on the one I love when they play that live but on this version he doesn't do that at all he sings it just like the the studio version and it's mm. to actually see him enunciating those words and see the the passion in his in his voice and in his face. Um, See kind the of, red uh, blood vessel in the temple throbbing. That's right. That's right. And it, it's a different type of song on Eclectic because it does go back to that more that folk theme. Yeah. yeah. And it's got slide guitar again that he that he brings up, and it's got beautiful violin playing by Bobby Valentino. Now the other interesting thing about the Eclectic version, it's got a slightly different arrangement. It's like they, which I think helps a little bit for me. 
with that one that one tiny issue I had with the sure we could have part maybe being repeated a little too much for me. But in the eclectic version, they repeat the uh, second verse again at the end, and they sort of end on instead of ending on sure we could have, and then doing an instrumental outro. They end on that's why I spend my Sunday standing still, and the song just comes to a a lilting end. That's why I spend my Sundays staggering and in And I think that's kind of a, a nice way to end it. Um, but still, both both versions are uh, are fantastic. I I've heard the demo version before. I haven't heard that in ages. I should have brought it out. I, as I recall, it wasn't really that much different from the studio version, just much less polished. Much less polished, and the singing is nowhere near as emotional. Which is why that is my number three version of the three versions we have. I would put uh, Eclectic on number two and the finished version on number one. And the main reason for that is that the song needs that electric guitar line. It doesn't quite bring the same emotion to have it played by a violin, even though Bobby Valentino is great. And it's a very interesting arrangement. I'm so glad we have it, and I'm so glad they played it on Eclectic. But it, it sincerely needs to have the wailing, crying guitar line that is the crux of the song along with we should have got it right is the crying guitar line that makes the song for me so for me for me i don't even go back and forth that that is my version yeah that's great hello tom it's fine john wilbur in southeastern new england just hoping it's not too late to throw in a little bit on the um, buffalo skinners both the album and the song Love the album, love everything about it. And for me, the big thing is that the drums are just absolutely vicious on this album. They are mean, as is the guitars. Everything is. These guys are one, four pissed off guys, and they're not afraid to uh, express themselves. But uh, the other thing that I really wanted to get into was the song, The Buffalo Skinners. And for me, that, uh, that belongs on the album. And it belongs as the closer. Whether or not you have to throw another song off, I'm not going to get into that. I think it belongs there because it's... Um, and the reason why it's got to be the closer is that it's... it's after all the uh, bitching and moaning that went on in the first 12 songs, this was the one where he's kind of stepping back a little bit. 
and he's contemplating things. He's thinking, he's taking the, the popular view, oh, it wasn't me, I didn't do it, I didn't kill anything, and he's saying that's not good enough. And he says, yeah, we could have got it right, we should have got it right, we didn't. And so he's uh, lamenting all, uh, all the misery that went before. And he gets the guitar to take up the, uh, the bit there. When he stops singing, right at the fade out, that guitar is crying. And it is crying for all it's worth. It's just beautiful and absolutely glorious. Anyway, if this is in time, great. If not, well, so be it. But uh, thanks for all the work. Love the podcast and uh, really enjoying the deep dives. We'll catch you later. Thanks. Bye. Well, just real quickly, uh, before we get off of the whole Buffalo Skinners thing, um, uh, we had talked about Stuart saying that he read this line in a poem. Yes. And um, I think we've both got some some examples of potential poems that who knows maybe <laughs> it came from. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we don't know any of this. Now, there there is probably the most famous... Actually, I know. Okay, if you know for sure, well, good. Then I do. The, and that is, uh, I mean, um, I can break it down. And we have to thank uh, Cam Davis for this because he did research in the 90s and then he checked with Stuart who confirmed it. Oh, fantastic. All right. Well, then, good Lord, I won't even bother with mine, <laughs> even though I think it works. I think, yeah, I think your example, it, it probably is inspired by that same poem. And there's lots of versions of the poem that uh, that this song comes from. Um, and a lot of people point to, to the Woody Guthrie, for example, who has... Uh, a song called the Buffalo Skinners, and a lot of people honestly mistakes that song to be the one that inspired Stewart. But Stewart's inspiration is much older than that. And if you look at the lyrics to that, I mean, it really it, it doesn't even fit at all any of the themes that Stewart talks no. about. No, it's it's very much kind of a personal journey of a guy who becomes a Buffalo Skinner, and this is what happens to me. It doesn't have any real commentary on the environmental issues or anything like that. Yeah, and Stuart might have, to be honest, uh, have put more of that in the song. But uh, the um, the phrase, I mean, I'll have a quote from Stuart first, where Stuart says in Record Collector magazine in February 1993, I came across the phrase as the title of a poem. I see it as a metaphor for the raping of the Earth's resources. The phrase seemed to evoke something that was special in its time, but is now passing on. So that is interesting that he says the phrase was the title of a poem, and maybe he took away that more than the poem itself, which kind of can make sense. But uh, just to go back to, to Cam Davis's uh, research, I tried to look for him, I tried to ask around if anyone knew where he was, but he doesn't seem to be online on, on the social media that, that I frequent in, at least. But if you're out there, Cam, or someone knows you, uh, I'd love to hear from you. But his research revealed that the poem, which is now called The Buffalo Skinners, was apparently originally called Buffalo Range. And the book that the, fo- the book that the poem was found in was first issued in 1908 with the tagline, The First Cowboy Songbook Published in America. And the author on the cover of that book that back then was Jack Thorpe, with Jack in apostrophes. The current reprintings use his actual name of N. Howard Thorpe. And the name of the book is Songs of the Cowboys. It's, the, it's like the tagline said, it's a collection of old cowboy songs from the late 1800s. 
Uh, I did a search online and the book is still possible to find for a reasonable price. Although the last print seems to be slightly older than both of us, printed in the, the mid to late 60s. So I figure that the poem, based on, uh, from what I can gather, the poem dates from um, before the turn of the century, since the buffalo hunting and slaughter heyday was the late 1870s and 1880s. And the national polity w- was to deprive the mobile independent plain Indians of their support to make the plains available for white people. So therefore, the best guess in Cam's estimation, not mine, he would know this better, uh, was that the poem probably dates from the end of that period, which puts it in the late 1880s. But in any case, that is the book it was found in. The book is called Songs of the Cowboys. And if you search for it now, you have to go by the author N. Howard Thorpe, ending on a P. So uh, I don't have the poem personally, but I, I've seen the book online that it is in. And that is what Stuart confirmed to Cam, that that is, that is where he found it. Interesting. So you don't have any of the, uh, the actual uh, lines from the poem handy? No, I don't. And I've never read it. Interesting. So wow. uh, just just like the the boys' own uh, books some years ago, maybe now we'll have a mad dash for the songs of the cowboys. I'll I'll put a link to where you can get it uh, on the Facebook group. And so there was there was nothing uh, online, I guess, then of either of no, that poem. No, it doesn't exist online. I could not find it because wow. this is this is one of those poems that it's from that time and it's author unknown. But uh, Mr. Thorpe collects poems and songs from that era. Interesting, because the Woody, the Woody Guthrie, uh, which he didn't write, by the way, some people mistakenly think he wrote that song, but he recorded a version of it. It's a, mm. It was a song that is also one of those songs that nobody knows who wrote it. It's anonymous. Yeah. So, you know, well, I'll, I'll bring up mine anyway, even though we've, we've proven that's not the one. Um, the only thing I could find when I did a search for this uh, was a song, or was a poem called Once on a Time, mm-hmm. and it was written by... Um, a guy named Edwin Ford Piper in the early 1900s. I'm not going to read the whole poem, but it, it does it does fit at least the theme of the whole album and uh, the final couple stanzas go like this. The buffalo skinner stacks the reeking pelt. One stench of rotting carcass drowns the plain. Buzzard and coyote, ant and fly have smelt the offense, but all their scavengery is in vain to sweeten any breeze. The hireling skins, fresh kill, and noisome carrion in his greed, glutting the while his fancy on the, se- on the sins. His dirty pay in his cheap soul may breed. Once on a time the rival bulls did roar, their fighting challenge, once, oh, nevermore. <laughs> so we get another nevermore. Must have been a Poe fan. Must but, have been. Um, yeah, so this guy was writing about uh, Buffalo Skinners from that from perspective of, of waste and, uh, you know, leaving a carcass to rots and and that kind of thing so that's that's the one that i thought well maybe this is it but um yeah as you said the only other one that i came across was the woody guthrie song and that one just didn't seem to fit so good good sleuthing good sleuthing again i, I want to read what that poem says i have to try to find that somewhere i'm thinking that book probably is of more interest to you since you have that deeper interest in the the west and the, the native indians and uh, and that time yeah, maybe I'll try to pick that up. If I do, I will uh, let everybody know. Then we'll have a special poem reading episode coming <laughs> by Mr. Thomas This It Is This Kerchival reading yeah. the book in no, its entirety. We might not. Nah. So, phew. So that is the Buffalo Skinner's album. Is and, it really? Um, so before, b- before we leave that song completely, 
uh, and this is um, we didn't oh. agree to do this, but do you have any idea how this song would have ranked to you if it had been on the album? What spot would it have taken? Oh man, uh, that's a good question. I, I would say it would certainly be. I'd say the top two somewhere. It might it might be number one, but it it would certainly be in the top two. No yeah. no no low, no worse than three. Right. But I think one of the things that that we it's it's a dual-edged sword because if it had been part of the album, we would have looked at it differently all these years. We would not that not that we wouldn't have loved it just as much. We probably would have, but because we've spent so many years looking at it as this outlier, it almost gives us. And you could sense that in your own uh, emotional rant. There, <laughs> it almost gives us this sense of like, uh, you know, putting it on a pedestal, maybe even more than we we would if it had been on the album. So I don't know, but it certainly would have been right up there. Yeah, no, I think to me there's more a frustration that it wasn't, which again speaks to its quality and how strong I feel about it. To me, yeah. it would be number one, and there's no question about it. Wow, great. Yeah, I think it's the best uh, big country song of the '90s for sure. And it's up there in the 80s, too. Fantastic. This is Corey Crowley. First off, let's get this out of the way. The Buffalo Skinners is by far my favorite big country album. Number one now and forever. So in the early 90s, I'd seen that Through a Big Country and No Place Like Home had been released in the UK. My local Tower Records, even with a great import selection, never had these two. Being in Seattle, I started buying EPs of Nirvana, Soundgarden, Green River, and Mother Love Bone. But by the time grunge hit mainstream, I'd been tiring of the mantra of life sucks that embodied so much of grunge. The Buffalo Skinners came at the right time. My inner metalhead loved the ferocity of the attack from the guitars, drums, and even Stewart's vocals. My fisherman's blood enjoyed the nautical imagery peppered through the lyrics. In November of 93... I got free tickets to a free radio station gig, and to my surprise, Big Country was the opener. The first and only time I would see the original lineup live. Everything seemed right in my world. But I have two distinct listening periods to the Buffalo Skinners. Released August 94 and post August 94. This was the album that spoke to me. Everyone around usually said, I know how you feel. But how could they, since they've never experienced the hell I was in? Lines like, it's not my life in those old pictures, alone inside my head, alone inside my tiny little world, lay right down and drown, when my ship went down, when I ran aground, when they burned me down, it doesn't hurt anymore. Vocalize the raw emotions and pain that I felt. It wasn't Stuart's tragedy, it was mine. For that reason, Buffalo Skinners will always be number one. Well, we've gone through all the songs, and uh, let's let's just cut through a couple of the little things about this album before we finally put this to bed, um, because there are a couple little issues and happenings and little notes, worthy notes the, about this time. And I guess probably one of the one of the first ones would be the uh, we don't have to talk too much about this, but it's certainly worth mentioning at least. There are two versions of this album, really. There's the original UK version that came out. And then there's the American remastered version that came out a few months later. 
um, on Fox. And the difference is that that version, the American version, was remastered by the great George Marino, who was a guy who's, that's all he did was master albums. And you probably have some of the albums that he mastered. He's sadly no longer alive. But uh, he also mastered some Kiss albums, by the way, to make sure we get the Kiss reference in there. But among the members of the band, among Ian Grant, I remember him raving about it on the boards. That version of the George Marino U.S. version is considered the superior version of the album as far as sound quality goes. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Do you have both? Or do you, did you listen, have you listened to both in, the, in that kind of uh, comparative way? Do you have any a particular favorite, or is it something that you never really think about very much? I have both, of course, and I've listened to both a little bit. It seems like the American version has a bit more oomph. Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond that, uh, I don't care too much. <laughs> well, then I just won't even bother saying, no, I'm still going to say my piece. Of course. Um, <laughs> no, I, I kind of feel the same way. I, I feel, but I do feel like um, I, I like both of them in for different reasons. It's it's strange. It's like uh, a lot of, a lot that you hear these days is that mastering over over uh, enthusiastic mastering is killing music. And what what people usually mean by that is that people try to master an album to sound as loud as it possibly can. And what that does mm. is sort of detract from the dynamics. In an album where the the softer parts are brought up higher and the higher parts are brought up higher and and there's not a, as much of a sense of dynamics between the two. Well, luckily for Buffalo Skinners, there really aren't many dynamics in the album anyway. It's it's usually cranked up to ten or eleven anyway. So um, George Marino though was a great master for not not just wanting volume for volume's sake. I mean, I think he did a good job of giving it more of a bass end. Um, but yeah, he was, George Marino was very widely regarded and I think he did a great job. And like you said, he, he gave it more of a, of a bass end. Um, uh, the, the sound of the American, the American remaster is bigger. It's fuller. It's one bassier. louder. I call it. Yeah. And it's got, but it's got like, it's just, it's more like a cannon shot, a cannon, the sound of cannon fire. <laughs> But the UK version, I would think, I think is more like, uh, it's more cutting. It's more like a sword. Who knows? I'd be interested to hear what what you guys think of it on the on the site on the Facebook group if you want to talk about it. But uh, the band the band always prefers it. Bruce has told me that he much prefers the George Marino version, and yeah. Ian has preferred it. And I think Tony has said that as well. So, yeah. Well, I, th- I think the reason I don't have strong opinions on those two versions is I I listened back. This is a while ago because both of these are in storage now. I, the only one I have out is the new remaster, uh, so they weren't handy. To, to do a new comparison. Well, but, now, which uh, one is that? Is that the Fox version? Do you know? Is that the George Marino version? They used uh, the George Marino version for that. Okay. That's, okay. that's the basis. But I think um, 
I think the difference is bigger with the remaster that they, that came out now than it is between the two different versions back then. Mm. Because I would sit and listen, and I don't know if this is just my ears, they were already worn and, and worn out 23 years ago, but uh, a lot of the songs, beyond just having slightly more volume, I didn't hear the instruments differently. I didn't hear everything um, to, be, to have such a significant difference. But right. again, that might be... I never sat down with the headphones and did the analytical approach back then because I didn't realize I would be sitting on a podcast 23 years old <laughs> having to pull up memories from it. So if I had known that, perhaps I would have taken that a little bit more serious in 1993. But well, the there thing, we go. Well, and the thing to keep in mind, too, is that it's it's a mastering job, which is different than a remix. Yeah. So the, the mix is the same. And while you might hear some things pop out a little bit more instrument-wise... Um, it's it's still the same mix. It just got like a new, different different uh, paint gloss on it than the yeah. UK version. So, so um, one of the other things that happened during this time is that the band totally scrapped their "No Place Like Home" logo and returned to the old logo with an addition of like these little sun things on it. Yeah. In fact, if you go back to Country Club issue number twenty eight, you can see printed the very host of this podcast asking the band this question that was printed in country club 28. And it says why the change in the band's logo on no place like home was a part of Phonogram's attempt to change the band image. And why did you return to the classic big country logo? And Bruce says the change in logo was a band record company decision. We thought the original logo was a bit dated and that something a bit more contemporary would be more suitable. How wrong we were. And Stewart said, I felt that because the group personnel was changing at the time, a different logo would reflect this. Having Mark back has made the original script very important to me. And then Tony said, the change of logo on No Place Like Home was instigated, I believe, by Phonogram in a vain attempt to put a new face on the band for the 90s. We agreed in principle, but, it, but as with everything else at that time, with that company, it was doomed to fail. We have return- <laughs> <laughs> what a great line. I know. Then he says, we have returned to the original logo because we have returned to the original band and attitude. Yo. Yeah. So uh, I remember for me personally, seeing that return of that logo on the cover really made me happy. Did yeah, that mean me anything too. to you at the time? Yeah, of course it did. It was like almost a statement of intent. And that was underpinned by when you listen to the music. Again, they're very much focused, very much... Uh, one step uh, or one foot in the history of the band and one foot in the future. Yeah. I see really both on this album. It came together well. And uh, the logo is not 100% the same. It's kind of the one they kept ever since with the kind of uh, little compass throwback. It's not really compass, but it kind of, it, it, it is a throwback to, to those days as well. Yeah. So uh, it was pretty much we're back and this is us and, uh, and we're back again. There's there's been a question. Uh, we sort of we sort of started out these podcasts saying de- pretty definitively that the only songs they never played live from this album were the selling of America and Winding Wind. Well, we did get someone on the uh, Facebook page swear that he did hear them play Winding Wind in America. Now I I posed the question to Bruce and I asked him, did you ever play either of those songs? And he he said, yeah, we did. He said, I remember rehearsing. I'm reading kind of reading his email here, paraphrasing it. But he said, I seem to remember rehearsing Selling of America, but not playing it live. Um, I would have loved to have heard how that sounded, man. Hmm. And he says, I don't think we attempted Winding Wind as it was written late in, the, late in the day in the studio. 
if we did try winding win, it would have been early in the tour, either your either UK then Europe, definitely not USA. I would have to say no on those two songs, but I could be wrong. LOL. <laughs> so we get kind of a close, closely definitive comment that he never played. Uh, they never played Winding Wind as well as Selling of America. But we do have someone who says they did play Winding Wind. So if anyone else heard them play Winding Wind and that was in America, let us know. I'd love to know the truth of that. In so, no likelihood, they really didn't play that song. One thing we had, we know if they did play it, it was a, it was probably a one-off if it was done at all. So yeah, in the I, UK or Europe. Yeah, yeah. So I guess the final thing to talk about with this album, and we could do a whole show on this alone, but we're not going to. Um, <laughs> the B sides, an- another another album cycle that yielded some fantastic B sides, and we already spent a long time dissecting one of them. Um, I, I don't, what, what are your thoughts generally on the B-sides of this era? I mean, granted, there aren't a ton of new original tunes, but the ones that are there, and we've talked about some of them already on, our, on the B-sides episodes that we did way back when, but um, the ones that are there are really, I think, very strong. And yes. um, what, what are some of your thoughts on those, and what are, what's your favorite B-side from this period, would you say? Well, the Buffalo Skinners would be my favorite B-side. That is the easiest question of all the ones you post. Yeah, it shouldn't funny. have I, been one. I, 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 I forgot. I'm, even I forget that that's a B-side. After our discussion, it's now part yeah, of the album for me. It, it, it really belongs on the album. I, I, it's, it's kind of a travesty to even include it in that uh, discussion. But uh, yeah, sure. Um, we had four new songs coming from the Buffalo Skinners era. We had six covers, three live tracks, and 13 demos being shared from this time of uh, of the buffalo skinners so it's quite a quite a few i mean the buffalo skinners had quite a few b-sides right long face had even more and driving to damascus had sort of a, a hordes of b-sides and, and outtakes and everything so this started a trend in the 90s with where you had just a mass amount of, of material. So the new songs are obviously always the interesting stuff, the songs that didn't make the album. And um, Eastworld is one I've always regarded incredibly uh, you know, highly. So I think that that is also one that would have been album-worthy in some way, even though it has a drum machine. But we had that discussion many times in the past on how that works for that song. But Never Take Your Place too is one that uh, I think uh, everybody loves it. Easily it would have held uh, the level of the album. And the band clearly likes it too, because uh, in the early years with Mike Peters, they, they definitely found this again and gave it a regular place in the set list, where it was always played and uh, played a little more slowly and somberly. And that also was a great take on that song. So, so those are very fresh in my mind. Dragon My Name is also a good song, but that was one that wasn't on the original singles. I came to it much later along with a bunch of other stuff. So in my head, I have to almost sort of place it there logically, more than thinking of it automatically as a Skinner's uh, period type song. But uh, that's a great one too, and that just underlines the quality of this era. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Interestingly, uh, Bruce says that Dragging My Name was not part of those Buffalo Skinner's sessions. He says, um, because I sent him a list of the B-sides that I thought were from that album just to confirm, and... uh, he says, the one that was wrong on your list is dragging my name. He said, I think that was recorded later. But he, he did say, I think. He said, I will have to do some detective work on that. So who knows? The, the one thing about that song that always struck me is um, 
lending itself to being part of the, those sessions is that the drum machine sounded exactly the same as, as the other demos from that time. And that doesn't mean he couldn't have just used the same drum machine later. But uh, I don't know. That, that's, that's why I always put that in that same category of songs. Um, so who knows on that one? Not totally sure when that came, but I always put that in the Buffalo Skinner's uh, session time period as well. Um, yeah, I mean, the same ones for me, East World, we've already talked about that so many times. What a fantastic song. We've got a couple of different versions of that. But there, there's another demo in that group that I think is is often overlooked, and I rarely see people talking about it. And I think it's a great, great, interesting song. And that is I Am a Small Republic. I think that is just a, a really interesting song. In fact, on the roundtable, I talked about Ian Grant sort of promoing the album by saying that they were working on songs that were epics, like uh, one of them was an epic like The Storm. And I remember thinking, what could be, he possibly be talking about? Because there's nothing like that on the album. But then hearing I Am a Small Republic, you, you immediately realize that that must have been the one he's talking about because it opens up with this long Ebo intro and yeah. it's got uh, various changes and in the, in the song structurally and it's got uh, a very plaintive type of thing feel to it and it's almost lyrically it, it kind of reminds me of east world it has very similar points to make as east world but um what an interesting tune and we talked about it a little bit on the round table but uh only stewart would would choose to write a song from the perspective of being uh a rising republic <laughs> on the world stage it's such a weird theme for a rock band to uh to take as a song but uh that's why i love the guy and why i love the band to mm. doing weird songs like this and this this song is one of those two that i think man if they would have done a full band version of this it, it could have really been impressive because there are so many big country classic big country flourishes and moments in this song and uh, i would love to have heard what mark or even simon would have done to this drum wise because i think this would have been one that would have really really benefited from from real big country drums. Oh, no doubt about it. So It, it might not have been uh, the perfect fit for, for Skinners, but it would have been great if they had picked that one up again for a wide long face. Yeah, they could have really fit well there. Yeah, I yeah. think so. All right, well, I think that exhausts every possible thing we could have talked about for this album. Is there <laughs> anything left? No, I mean, if I'm going to summarize this discussion and all these episodes, it, listening to this album makes me realize just how much I love this band. And uh, it's, uh, it's obviously an album you should just sit down and listen to it and enjoy it. What we do is kind of the mad scientist approach. We, we sit there with a magnifying glass and tear the songs apart and <laughs> look critically at every component. And obviously, that's uh, yeah. it's, it's part of what we do. But I hope it comes across how much we love this band and how much we like this. And I, I kind of say this with this thing in the back of my head that some people noted that the previous episodes were negative. That we were a little too critical sometimes when we pull the components apart and say, I don't like that bit, I don't like that bit, but this bit is good and stuff. And that it can come across that way, and I, I get that. And uh, I think um, for a song like Ships, which I ranked number 12, I hope people noticed how out of my way almost I went in pointing out how much I like the song, even though I don't like the arrangement. So uh, these things like that is part of the discussion and I hope it's understood that it comes from a genuine place. Yeah, I think so. I mean, one thing I do think when we do these dissections is sometimes even, for example, um, 
looking at the Buffalo Skinners and trying to find really coherent lyrical meaning to that, you, you run the risk of, of just being too, uh, too scientific about it. Yeah. And so I'm always trying not to step over that line, but who knows, maybe we do it from time to time because the truth be told, I mean, when, when Stewart is writing these songs, I'm sure he's not necessarily thinking about how every line perfectly fits in with the next one and sometimes you just think of lines and he said this before in interviews you just think of word play that comes into your mind and you just like the way it sounds and you you just fit it in there and uh, it fits in some abstract way but it doesn't necessarily always have to fit in some perfectly linear um, meaning that that you can easily decipher so yeah I mean that's always the danger of doing these intense deep dives that we do is that maybe we pick things apart you know to the utmost extreme but it's it's fun it's fun to do it and i hope i hope that it comes through that and i, I think it does at least when i listen i hope it comes through for for the majority of our listeners that uh it's all done out of tremendous love the band and i, yeah. I think we love pretty much everything anyway but no uh, i mean uh, if if you're in in honesty pick any band i like i don't think there is a band i like 100 percent of their output but there is a percentage, and I can safely say for big country, that percentage is pretty damn higher than, than most of the other bands I, I listen to. I, I, the majority of the output, I, I love. Some things in there will get the critical comments, but that's also what we do. But I hope people don't take it to heart if we are critical with your song. Just um, If you listen to an album, don't listen to it the way we are talking about this. Just enjoy the music. And maybe, <laughs> right. and may, we are, we're doing this so that you guys don't have to do it. And you don't want to do it, believe me. <laughs> so just, uh, just enjoy it. And maybe some of the comments we do help you appreciate some things a little bit more. And sometimes you can shake your head and say, oh, that, that crazy guy, how can he say stuff like that? That's great. Do that, by all means. Yeah, yeah. So, well, we appreciate everyone listening. And... Um... I think we've been very prolific in the past couple of months with these episodes. And uh, I want to thank you, Spine, for editing them because it's been <laughs> it's been a big help. I'm sure I'll be taking the brunt of the next ones, um, which is more than deserved. So, uh, gosh, I hope you guys have enjoyed this. I, I really, when we started doing Buffalo Skinners, I, I figured it would be a longish one, but I didn't think it would rival the Steel Town Deep Dive as far as breadth and length and all that stuff but uh, i think it sort of did it did without question and it, yeah we, we got longer the into the album we got <laughs> the, i first telling uh, it's telling also but also once we hit our stride then uh, this, yeah. this is where we end up well, i hope you guys enjoyed it and as always you can find us on facebook look for us at the great divide podcast um if you go to the to uh bigcountrypodcast.com it's kind of like a launching page where you can download the latest or you can stream the latest episode and you can find all the old ones to download if you're not using us on iTunes and on that page you, you'll also find links to various other sort of satellite things related to the podcast one of which is my own music if you want to listen to that purchase that you'll find a link for it there um, there's still a link to the seer petition which we we still get signatures to that I have nothing new to report, unfortunately, on that, but I'm still trying to promote it and get it out there. We'll see what happens, if anything. Um, but just stay in touch. You can also email us at bigcountrypodcast, bigcountrypodcast at gmail.com, and we love getting your comments. So we will be back. I don't know when. We might be taking a little break. Who knows? But um, we've got some we've got some ideas for, for uh, future shows in between the Nick, this and the next uh, deep dive, whatever that will be. I think we've only got two uh, studio albums left. We so, do. 
then so maybe a, do we pace it out or do we rush through them i don't know that's what, I, that's I, what they have to think about i go back and forth i sometimes i just want to just have them all done so that i know that they're done yeah then, that, I, then i can end the show anytime i want that that's when we can retire to our caribbean island with a drink from for all the income from the show yeah more like our 7-eleven dumpster <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh yeah so thanks fine it's been a lot of fun hope it you guys been. out there felt the same yeah thank you tom and uh, you. we'll be back at some point whenever we uh, the steam is back and uh, let us know what you think your comments uh, are a big motivator in keeping this going yeah they are but thank you and good night fare thee well my fairy fay hey that's my line <laughs> you didn't say it you can <laughs> say boo-boo 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 <laughs> you got it I have a question for you, though. Go for it. You're going to laugh at this question. Like I what? laugh at all your questions. <laughs> what What is my ranking of Pink Marshmallow Moon? <laughs> <laughs> well, is it I six can't... or five? I have it at six, but I know I switched things up, and I can't remember what what it did to everything. Just a second. I think it's neither, to be honest. But let me see. Okay. Uh, Pink Marshmallow Moon. You have that at six. Yes. Okay, so Chester's Chester's Farm would be eleven then, or ten? It's ten. Ten now, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Good. Good. <laughs> <laughs> who, who am I voting for? <laughs> All right. All right. Well, let's launch into this bitch. This bastard. Another beast. Take it down. What are you doing? Are you screwing something in? <laughs> sounds like sounds like you're taping taping something. I'm ripping plastic from a CD. Oh, okay. Um, you threw me off completely, bastard. All right. Uh, you said George Marino is beautiful and I want to have his child. Uh, well, no, I did not say that. But And that was just for the Kiss album work he did. <laughs> Actually, he did like a Peter Chris album, so I can't, can't say that. I'm sure he did some other One for All. Please don't say One for All. Yeah, he did do that one. Yeah, oh he did God. do that one. Yep. How did he I want to be involved it. with that? Uh, money. <laughs> but they, pay, they paid him, so he did it. That album made no money. No, that was a terrible, certain. <laughs> terrible abomination. All right, I'm sorry. That's all right. The one I love. One, two, three, four.
learn in your job today? Did you learn to sleep while the boss is away? And you shut your mouth when he calls you down Cause there's not much work in that kind of town Wander around thinking Well, what kind of place is this? Where they say, hey Now, what did you do in the world? Now I ask them, well, hey man Now, what did you do with the bees? Well, we built these real safe weapons So you could sleep with ease Well, dog, and now we're not in Kansas The sky's all colored wrong Sure don't understand this That's what you're howling for And now we're not in Kansas Kansas and in ten-year-old kid in the street and ask him what he thinks wrong with the world and he'd tell you and you could go to a 60-year-old politician and ask him and he may well give you a very similar answer so why doesn't something just go right this is what needs fixed <laughs> let's fix it you know it's like here's two people mm. right who cover an entire spectrum of generations and they just something goes wrong somewhere why 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 does it just look here's the money go and repair it 
Uh, that's a, that's a very simplistic worldview, I realise. But uh, sometimes uh, simple is best, you know.